But uh, th- this morning, we, uh, we look at the words that, that Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 5, and, and really focusing our attention on hope. On hope. Uh, hope is, I, I think it's a necessity of life. I think it is essential um, for for our, our human in our human experience, and sometimes hope comes in um, very uh, well. We understand it, I think, in, in very profound ways. Sometimes in, in silly and funny ways. Cassidy, in fact, I asked her to pull this this week. Uh, she was reading to me something, or she's actually reading to her. Her actually, I messed up. I knew I'd mess up. She was reading to her, um, her mother and I um, this this. Um, there we go. This uh, test that she found on the internet that somebody had posted, and it's probably one of these funny things that goes around. And it's, it was a bunch of answers that kids gave in exams to questions that they didn't really know the answers to. So they tried to be um, creative. Um, for instance, answers like, uh, where was the Declaration of Independence signed? On the bottom of the page. Um, <laughs> You know, what, are two, what is something you cannot eat for breakfast? Lunch and dinner. Thank you very much. Um, what are some of the other ones? Let's see. How can a man go eight days without sleeping? Easy. Sleep at night. Um, and then the last one, if, if you had three apples and four oranges in one hand and three oranges and four apples in the other, what would you have? Very big hands. Thank you very much. <laughs> Smile the teacher. But, but there were these silly answers. And so, but it, it got me thinking. And I came across another one that isn't quite as silly, but, but was an answer that a, that a kid gave to an exam that I thought was actually pretty profound. And the question was, what do hibernating animals subsist on during the winter? And the answer she put on her exam was they subsist on the hope of spring. Now, that's probably not the answer the teacher was looking for, but I thought it was a profound truth for us how essential it is for us to, in our lives, and in far more significant ways, to have hope, and, and how even more important sometimes than bread and water and the essentials of life, ho- life hope is for us. And in this text, in this portion of, of Romans, chapter 5, Paul writes about hope, and he writes about this new understanding of how we have hope through faith. And so let me just turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, just a few verses here. And brothers and sisters, I invite you to follow along or just to hear these words. Paul writes, and the Lord speaks to us these words, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, I pray God's blessing this morning on the reading of this, His Word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, through your Holy Spirit, speak. Speak to our hearts. Speak through the proclamation of your word. Speak through these words that I bring today, that you'd help Chris get out of the way and that you'd speak to us and you'd birth in us or 
rebirth in us the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to just make an assumption this morning that you are at least in, in some ways familiar with the term um, the Protestant work ethic. Um, if you're not, and, and I'm going to oversimplify it, but, but the Protestant work ethic was this, um, this ethic that was attributed, that is attributed to much of the success of, of, our, of our nation. It was this idea that to be successful, you have to work hard. To achieve, you have to, you put in the effort, you have to, to be a steer, you have to, to be dedicated. Basically, that, that you, you get what you deserve. You, you, you get what you invest um, in, in your, your talents and your, your sweat and, and sometimes you know, blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak. And, and I think it's a valuable uh, lesson. I think it's a, a valuable philosophy, the idea that, that we do need to work hard. We do need to strive for excellence. We need to apply ourselves. All of those truths are something that we, we don't want to lose. But there's a danger when a Protestant work ethic gets tied in to our in our case, Protestant theology. When that kind of understanding of you get what you deserve, you, you, you reap what you sow in some, in some ways, um, begins to shape our understanding of our, our relationship with God and our faith. Because there is a danger there, and it's, it's an interesting challenge because the Protestant worth ethic, I can't say that word, the Protestant work ethic, um, stands very much in con contrast to the, the theology that birthed the Protestant Reformation, which sought to, to liberate us from a theology that had the potential to become a tremendous burden upon us. In many ways, I think a, a theology that, that risked robbing us of hope. When I was a freshman in in high school, I remember um, as a as a aspiring you know football player. I remember getting my first tour of the of the school's weight room, and the facility that as as athletes we were expected to spend a lot of our off time and our training. And so, as as incoming freshmen who were largely unfamiliar with a lot of the apparatus there in a in a high school weight room, I remember we got kind of an orientation. And one of the pieces of equipment I always remember getting um, taught to use properly was what's called a squat rack. If, if you've lifted, if you've worked out in gyms, you, you're probably familiar with a squat rack. But, but the squat, squat rack is basically a cage in some ways. And it, it's, you know, it's kind of a, a box cage, but then it has um, posts that slant up and they've got pegs you know, up the post. If you've been at the YMCA, you've seen them. They have them in the gym there. And it, it allows you to rack a, a barbell at different heights. And the, the initial impression is that, those, that that rack exists so that you can do that. Depending on how tall you are, you can set the bar at the proper weight for you. Because when you squat, if you're not familiar, you take that weight on your shoulders with whatever's weight. And you, you basically, you, you do exactly, you squat. You drop down into a parallel position, you stand back up again with how much weight's on your shoulders. But I always remember 
one of the lessons they taught us about that squat rack was they taught us how to fall. They taught us how to fall. In other words, that rack was not just created so that you could set the weight at a proper height, but it was created in such a way so that when they anticipated we were dumb enough to put too much weight on the bar, which probably every one of us at one point was dumb enough and did, and we were no longer able to support the weight that was on our shoulders, we would know how to fall forward into the rack, and the rack would catch the bar and would save us from getting killed. But, but I always remember this expectation that basically, they didn't say it so obviously, but it basically was, you will eventually put on too much weight, you will eventually get into a situation where you cannot stand under the weight you've put on top of your shoulders, and you need to know how to fall properly. Well, I, I thought about that in relation to this work ethic, this theology that I think we have to be so careful about, which basically says to us, or that we buy into, is that our relationship with God, our faith, our, our worthiness, is dependent upon what we do. What we do, and, and, and our righteousness, and our faithfulness, and our... Um, integrity and, and, and right decisions. Because what happens is when that becomes the foundation of our faith, it's, it's like starting to pile weight on your shoulders. And inevitably, it, you're going to fall. And that is what Paul had learned. And that is what Paul teaches us. And God teaches us through these few verses in Romans and really throughout the Scriptures is that our hope, our faith, is not built upon our worthiness, is not built upon what we do, is not built upon our righteousness, but rather the foundation is upon what Christ has done for us. And so Paul begins Romans 5 with words that if you knew Paul, if I think if we had grown up with Paul, if we had known Paul's history, if we'd been there through his journey of faith, words that would have shocked us to hear him say for the first time. Because Paul says this, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. Now, we don't necessarily capture the significant shift that this represented in Paul. For Paul to have written these words. But when you understand his backstory, and some of you do, you remember that Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were committed to upholding the law. The law of faith. Not just the Ten Commandments, but 613 laws of the Torah. They were absolutely militant about being faithful and observing, observe, I can't speak, observing the letter of the law. It's good that I'm doing a sermon on not being perfect, and I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing this for you. Um, but, but they were absolutely dedicated to that, which is why Jesus butted heads with them so often. Because the law came first. It came above all else. Because by being faithful, by observing the law, you basically earned God's love. You earned God's favor. And so they did everything they could to observe every law. In fact, there's, and I've, I've used this story before, have any of you ever heard of bleeding Pharisees? Is that a term familiar to you? Bleeding Pharisees were a, a group of Pharisees. Uh, Philip Yancey writes about them in, in one of his books. I can't remember which one now. But they were so 
just committed to not breaking any of the laws of their faith, that they would walk around with their eyes down all the time because they didn't want to look upon anything that would cause them to sin. They didn't want to look lustfully at a woman. They didn't want to look upon something that they would covet or something they would want. They didn't want their eyes to cause them to sin. So they would look down all the time, even as they walked. And what would happen, and I'm not making this up, they would bump into things. And they would cut themselves, and they would literally bleed from their forehead. And they got known as bleeding Pharisees. But that's because they were so just um, devoted to following the letter of the law. Now, I'm not saying Paul was a bleeding Pharisee, but that was Paul's background as a Pharisee, absolutely committed to the law. And believing that, God's favor was earned by our actions. Now, there's a problem with that because when we begin to believe that we earn God's favor, that we get closer to God when we do all the right things, there's a, there's a corollary to that. And that is what happens when we do the wrong things. You know what? It reminded me of the game that we, most of us probably learned as children. Red light, green light. You remember that game? Remember playing that? Remember how it went? There was somebody at the front and they would say green light and they would turn their back and everybody would start moving, running, walking as fast as they could toward that person because the first one there was the winner. But then what would happen? They would say red light and what would they do? Stop and turn around. And if they caught you moving, what happened? You were either thrown out or the way I remember playing, you weren't thrown out, you had to go back. No matter how close you had gotten, as soon as you got caught moving, as soon as you got caught breaking the law, moving on red, you got pushed all the way and you were that much further away. And I think sometimes theologically that's what we have to be careful. I think that's what Paul believed. You know, that once you got caught, in, boom, you're further away from God. But Paul has an encounter with Jesus that would shift his understanding. When he comes into the presence of Jesus, when he's blinded by Jesus, and when he, when he dedicates and begins to follow in the ways of Jesus, Paul understands that our hope in Jesus is very, very different than where his hope had been before. And that's what he says. He says, therefore, since we are justified through faith. Later on, verse 2, he says, through whom talking about Jesus, through whom we have gained by faith, we have gained access by faith into this grace. See, Paul understands that things have changed. That no longer is God's grace, is His salvation, is His love something to be earned, but it's something that's freely given. And I believe it liberated Paul. In fact, Paul uses a word that I find very interesting. He says that we have peace with God. He says, through this understanding of, of God's free gift and God's unmerited love and God's compassion for us all, he says, we have peace with God. And I wonder, and I will, I will freely admit I'm reading into this a little bit, but I wonder if it was the first time in Paul's life he'd ever had peace with God. Because it's hard to have a healthy relationship with any person that you feel obligated to be obedient to. That you fear that every time you mess up is going to call you on it. That, that almost, you know, we talk about a fear of God, and there's healthy fear. 
but that you're so afraid to mess up and to fall short and to make a mistake because it would jeopardize the relationship. I don't know how you'd have a healthy relationship that way. I know Tony and I could not have a healthy relationship if I knew that every time I messed up, every time I fell short, I was in jeopardy of blowing the relationship because we would not have made it one year, let alone 19, had that been the case. But Paul says, I have peace, or we have peace with God. Because all of a sudden he understood that God wasn't looking to catch us in our mistakes. God was rather looking to love us in spite of them. And it changes his understanding of, of faith. And we have to hear that because what happens is when we, when we buy into that, and, and I don't know how many of you have bought into that in your life, that, that your behavior earns God's love. And sometimes we get shaped in that because some of us are the products of environment. Some of you are the products of, of parents who had very high expectations of you. And maybe parents who you felt you could never please. Some of you may be the, the, the products of relationships or experiences with people who you felt you could never please. And we carry that baggage into our relationship with God. Or we carry that expectation into our relationship with God. And Paul says we rather are not justified by what we do, but we're justified by what God has done for us. In our imperfection, His perfection has been poured over us. His blood has made us clean, has washed away our sin. All the, the language that we sing and the language that we use, it's the truth of who we are, but we kind of fall into this trap, I think, of, of a Protestant work ethic that we apply into our walk with Jesus that says you have to earn it. You have to be good enough. You have to deserve God's love. What Paul says and what our faith is none of us deserve God's love. In fact, God's expectation is so high that we're never going to fully receive it or we're never going to fully attain it. But there's the promise. God's grace is so powerful that we don't have to. Now, let me pause for a second and be real clear because this is one of those sermons that has a dangerous potential for you to walk out hearing something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that obedience doesn't matter. I'm not saying that we don't seek to be faithful and, and honor Christ with our lives and our choices and our actions. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that our obedience, our faithfulness, is not something we do in order to earn God's love. It's something that we offer in gratitude for God's love. We, we respond in faith and faithfulness out of hearts of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. I go back over and over to that story of Jesus and that woman caught in adultery. And he refuses to condemn her. He pours out his... It's not that she hasn't done anything wrong. Not that she hasn't been in an adulterous relationship. But he communicates his unmerited love. His refusal to condemn her. But don't ever forget what he says to her in response to that. So we tend to forget the rest of the story. We love to talk about the part where Jesus pardons, but we also forget his challenge then to her. Go and sin no more. Out of God's love, go and be different. Paul says our hope, our hope is not in that we earn God's love. Our hope is in that he offers it and that our life is then lived in response to that. And, and he says something, I'm going to spend a lot of time in this, but it's another significant thing because he says suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. Now again, we hear that and we go, okay. But remember a mindset that Paul would have been birthed into that said that your suffering in life, your hardship in life, your difficulty in life, if you had such terrible things happen to you, were a product of your sin. 
that if bad things happened to you, it was because you'd been unfaithful, you'd been disobedient. Paul says, no. No, God is even at work even on our sufferings. And it's not God's withdrawal of his blessings. In fact, sometimes God's blessings happens right there in the midst of it, often. My grace is sufficient for you. Those are other words Paul would write. For God would say to him, my power is made perfect in your weakness. We're called to stand liberated from the burden of perfection, from the burden of not making mistakes, from the burden of feeling we have to do everything right all the time, because if that is our expectation, you will be disappointed, and you will become more and more burdened and weighed down. It's like those weights just piled on your shoulder to eventually you will collapse underneath it. In fact, I'm, I'm, I believe, this is my theory, that some of the critical people that we know in our lives are people that are burdened by their own expectations of perfection. And when they can't achieve them, they tend, we tend to become fault finders. Because when we can't achieve what we believe we should do, we, we tend to kind of get burdened, we get weighed down, we get overwhelmed, and sometimes we look to bring other people with us. And if I'm going under, you're coming with me. And so we begin to become fault finders. But Paul says, let that weight be removed because the one who is perfect has died for your imperfection. The one who is perfect has removed that weight so that we can now stand in his grace. And that's the word he uses. We stand in his grace. If you've ever carried a heavy backpack, um, anything heavy on your back for any length of time, you know what happens. You start to hunch over. I, th these kids in school now, including my kids, the, the bricks they carry in their backpacks. And I watch them, and they're hunched over all the time because they weigh. Uh, when I was in high school, I don't know what happened, but we had lockers. They don't have lockers anymore. So we didn't have to carry all that stuff around. I'm not looking at Terry Devine, who's the assistant principal right now, but that's who. Um, but anyway, I, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. But, but they, carried, they carry these weights, um, and we carry weights. And you know what happens? You start to hunch over. But you also know what happens when you're able to let go of the weight, when you're able to drop it. I mean, you stand up taller. You feel free. You feel lighter. Paul says, stand in that grace. Stand and be counted. Stand and be seen. Stand in response to God's grace. Stand in awe and praise of God. And, and let me add this. And stand for others. Understand God's grace is freely poured out for you. Be the instrument in which God shares that love and grace with others in spite of their imperfection. Because when we understand how powerful God's grace and forgiveness is for us, we're able to extend that for others. And we're able to stand on behalf of others. And sometimes as the church, we beat people down in their sin. We need to be the ones who stand in the grace of God on behalf of others. Not excusing behavior, but communicating love even in the midst of unfaithfulness. For the point of allowing others, as we have to understand the power of God's forgiveness and mercy. So I pray today that you're not burdened by the weight. You're not hunched over from carrying the expectation that you have to be perfect and you have to get it all right. And that if you make a mistake, God's favor and his love is withdrawn because Paul says just the opposite. Our hope is in that we are justified in faith and we have received God's grace. Stand in that. Stand strong. Stand strong and receive the promise that Christ offers. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would receive that gift that you give in Christ. And that our lives would be lived in gratitude and, and in response to that gift. 
that we would seek to be faithful, but not because our faithfulness earns you mercy, but because in spite of our unfaithfulness, you have poured it out anyway. And Christ's perfection pours and covers our imperfection. For that, we are thankful. And I pray that you'd help us together as the church of Jesus Christ stand tall and be counted as your followers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.